Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to the book of Habakkuk, or again, Habakkuk, depending on your pronunciation. Last night, Conrad called me. We had an interesting conversation that I haven't been able to get out of my mind today, but it plays perfectly into what we're going to read out of Habakkuk tonight. And so I just want to give you a brief synopsis of what Conrad told me. Is it okay that I just used your name publicly? So everybody can email him because this is not, no. Conrad said that his neighbor uh, had said a time or two, had told Conrad and Marilyn that he would come here to GCA and then he didn't come and he didn't come. And he recently told Conrad that his complaint with the Bible and the reason apparently that he's not willing to dip his toe into religious waters at this point is that God is smiting the Egyptian firstborn because God did that, that that's a kind of a, a stumbling block for him. That's, that, how do you worship a God that would do something so evil? Exactly. Now, let's think about that. Because one of two things is true about that statement. Either God never did it and the Bible isn't true and we can just write all that off. We can say, okay, the Bible says that God smote the Egyptian children, but I don't believe in the Bible. The Bible's not true and so therefore I excuse all of that. But that didn't seem to be what this fellow was saying. He said, since God smote the Egyptian children. I can't worship a God like that. And that's even scarier because that's an admission that that God does exist. Mm -hmm. I just can't bring myself to bow down in front of him. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what Habakkuk is going to deal with tonight is that sometimes God does difficult things from a humanistic standpoint painful things, takes people through punishments, and also the enemies of God are often just wiped out. This is a God who describes himself as a jealous God and a vengeful God. Again, from a humanistic perspective, we don't like that, but if he exists, and if he is like he describes himself, all-powerful, if he does have all authority and he is a judge, What kind of fool would say, I refuse to worship him? And yet people do like the the neighbor that you've got. Now, as we continue to read through Habakkuk, we're going to see that that is indeed exactly how God is. That God is a jealous and a vengeful God to those people who are his enemies. And that he is good and gracious to those people who he has chosen that are his people, but also in the worst of times. Now, you have to kind of imagine this for a moment 
because Jerusalem, all of Judah, had so apostatized at this point. There was so much sinfulness in the streets. Every man was doing as he pleased. Habakkuk was, along with the other prophets, were saying, God cannot but punish you. He has to punish you for the way that you're living. And as this is going on, and the Babylonians are rising up in power, and they've conquered the Assyrians and conquered Egypt, and they're coming toward Jerusalem, that is sure and certain bloodshed coming your way. And if you don't die behind it, you're going to go into slavery behind it. There's no way that this ends well if God does not intervene and make sure that he protects you. And now God has said that he's going to use the Babylonians to punish Israel. And there's, again, only one of two reactions to that from the perspective of the Israelites living in Israel. Either they're going to shake their fist at God. How can God treat us like this? Like we talked about on Sunday morning. Before the 40 years in the wilderness, oh, God brought us out here to kill us with thirst. At the end of the 40 years in the wilderness, oh, God brought us out here to kill us with thirst. Like they didn't have (laughs) graves in Egypt, right? So God took them out into the wilderness to bury them there and to kill them all with thirst. And so that is one reaction to the, the reality that God's like this. That God demands righteousness. He demands obedience. He demands worship. He does not just sit in the heavens wringing his great eternal hands hoping that someone will accept him or that someone will make him Lord. He is the omnipotent king of the universe, the maker of all things. And so he demands that people rightly respect him for who he is and how he is. And so the reaction is either... I hate this God, I don't want anything to do with this God, or, as you're going to see in Habakkuk 3, it's despite all this, even though there's all this, even though we're hungry, even though we're being encroached on, even though our kingdom is falling to the Babylonians, nevertheless, God will be worshipped. Nevertheless. And so I find that, that frame of mind, that frame of reference, I find that very contemporary because we're living in a world right now that seems to be asking the question, where is God? The world, the contemporary world, the world as it stands, keeps trying to put God to the test. Keeps saying, if God would just show up, if he would just do something miraculous, if there was just a great movement of God, if I could see Uh, a miracle that isn't explainable any other way but God's intervention, if I could see a dead man raised, if I could, you know, see blind eyes opened, if I could just see something, then I would believe. And that was the same problem back here. People were either saying there is no God, God has abandoned us, it's all over, or they're saying God exists and he's punishing us and I hate him. But there were very few that were saying despite all of that, God deserves to be worshipped. And God is good. And God is good. And that today is the same thing, that people, if they do believe in God, that he does do things, they might see that he kills Egyptian children and be upset about it and shake their fist at him and say, well, then I won't worship that kind of God. Or the greater number of people on the planet are saying, well, then there is no God because I see no evidence of a God. 
but God himself deserves worship, deserves praise under all circumstances, even during those times when he's quiet, because he's been quiet before in history. When you read the book of Genesis, you see seven generations, you see a quick listing of the first people on the planet, but all you hear about them is that they lived and they died, and this person lived that many years and they died. Methuselah, practically a whole thousand years. So we know that in that period of time between Adam and Eve leaving the garden until the flood, not a lot of God activity in there that we know about. We don't read about God actively. Yeah, after the curse, God gets quiet again. And so God has a history of at least from the way it's represented in, the, in his word, he has a history of just being quiet. We know that between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the beginning of the New, that 400 years span, God was quiet. And so we seem to be living in a day right now when God seems quiet, except that as you look at the world, you also see God's hand of judgment occurring all over the place. I did have someone ask me the other day, do you think that God is, the word was inactive right now? And I said, oh no, he's very active. <laughs> oh yes, but he's active in negative ways at this point because the world seems to be embracing all the things that we know from God's word are even abominable. And yet people are embracing them and defending them and saying that you can even be a Christian and embrace these things. So Habakkuk is in that situation where God is bringing Babylon down on Jerusalem. Fear is running rampant. And in chapter 2, Habakkuk not only tells us that God is going to punish Israel, but then he's going to punish Babylon, who punished Israel. And he's going to defeat Babylon ultimately. And then he... When we get to chapter 3, he, he writes a psalm, a very genuine psalm that includes musical notation. And at the end of it, he says, even if there was nothing, even if there's no food, there's no vines, there's no, even if, if all hope is lost, I'll worship God because he deserves it. Which makes me think of Job, which is the oldest book in the Bible. And Job's statement, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. And he suffered pretty badly, and, and yet he trusted. That, he still still trust. Good. So let's start in chapter 2, verse 1. We'll just read it out until we get up to verse 15. Verse 15 is where we left off last week. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Habakkuk. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and he said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold. As for the proud one, this is the king of Babylon, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous, the just, will live by faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man, 
so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. But will not all of these take up a taunt against him? So now God has said, yeah, the king of Babylon's coming down on you. And he's collecting nations to himself and he's aggrandizing himself. But I'm going to take him down and I'm going to take him down so hard that the people are going to taunt him. So starting at verse 6, will they not take up this taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, woe to him who increases what is not his. For how long? And he makes himself rich with loans. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? And those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and to all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself. And surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that the people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's where we ended last week with the promise that God was not only going to take down Babylon, but that one day, the same way that the waters of the seas cover the earth, that God's righteousness was going to cover the earth. A wonderful promise that has not happened yet. And so far, Habakkuk's got a perfect batting average going. The things that he predicted actually happened. This is one of the prophets that we can actually check in history, and we can see that the things he predicted actually did come true. And so when he throws something out like, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, the same way that the seas cover the earth, well, I believe that too. Or else I'd have to say, Habakkuk got it 98% right. <laughs> but when he predicted that the Righteousness of God was going to break out on the planet. That's the point at which he doesn't know what he's talking about. But everything that Habakkuk said has come true and will come true because the book proves itself. So starting at verse 15, now last week I mentioned to you that Habakkuk had said that the king of Babylon and the people that were with him were given over to wine. He's already mentioned wine and now he's going to drill down on that little bit. And say, woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your poison even to make them drunk. In other words, 
Even though wine was a very common drink, they would encourage people to drink wine because they had poisoned the wine. They had put some other chemical in it in order to make them, as we're going to find out in a moment, in order to make them looser or pass out and uncover their nakedness. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. So really we're talking about drunkenness, we're talking about chemicals that are being used, drugs, and we're talking about sexual proclivities, sexual things, people are looking on each other's nakedness. So there is a a great deal of sin that's going on in Babylon, which, as I said last week, is one of the reasons I think that in the book of Revelation you see again references to Babylon. This comes up. The religion of Babylon, the activities of Babylon. Babylon becomes kind of the figurehead for not only false religion, but also for human depravity. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. And the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. That's a reference to the cup of judgment. He's the only one that can righteously judge, and eventually that cup is coming around to you because you've lived this way, because of your sinfulness, because you think that you've placed yourself in such a high and mighty impregnable fortress of a town that nobody can ever get to you, but you're going to fall. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them. What that's about is that in the building of Babylon, you may know that Lebanon was the place where everybody would go to get lumber. If you needed a lot of lumber, the forest of Lebanon was the place that you would go. But you also know that you can over-harvest any forest. You can take way too much wood out of it and too many trees and And then there's really not much left over. Well, Babylon and the king of Babylon, in his uh, growth, he not only did violence to all the trees in Lebanon, there's even some history that says that what he didn't take, he burned. I mean, he was really trying to make himself the only kingdom that counted in the Middle East. And in the process of doing that, between the forestry and the burning and everything else, it terrified the animals. Now God, who is in charge of everything, who is absolutely sovereign, who is in charge of every sparrow that falls from the sky, who is in charge of the nature of snakes so that he can eventually make them not hurt or harm in all his holy mountain, the God who isn't just involved in human beings and human activity, but the God who's involved in the animal kingdom because that's his kingdom because he created all of them and they all cry to him and they sing praises to him. He now is defending the animals against the king of Babylon who terrified them. And I like that about God. It's one of the many things I like about God. I've had people ask me, do you think that there will be animals in heaven? And I say, well, we're coming back on horseback. I think that's a clue. (laughs) so. So here he is defending animals. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land and to the town 
and to all its peoples. Okay, now look closely at verse 18, because I just find this fascinating. Because it really is God saying people are stupid. Look at the questions. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Why do people make their own idol, carve their own idol, deck their own idol, have to carry their own idol around, and then worship it like it did something? It didn't do anything. You made it. Or it can do something. Or like it can do something. Well, you can get into that now, too. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or what profit is an image, which is a teacher of falsehood? So I think on Sunday we talked a little bit about images and not making images and whether or not you bow down before them. And here's God saying that the maker trusts his own handiwork and that if the if the maker the human being makes an idol and then bows himself down to worship it all that it can teach him is falsehood it can't possibly teach him the real god of heaven the maker of heaven and earth that he would deliver his son substitutionary atonement it can't teach you any of that it can only teach you falsehood i again have had people say well, I'm not Christian, but I'm very spiritual. So I go out to the woods and I sit by the babbling brook and I, I commune with nature and that's my God. I say, what can you learn from that? You, you can hear the brook babble. That's not going to tell you anything. The trees aren't going to talk. You can come away feeling good. You can have an emotional experience. Dipped yourself into the brook or hugged a tree. But when you come back, you've learned, learned nothing. Mm -hmm. It hasn't increased your knowledge of God at all. Does the tree save? Does the tree save? The tree can't save, and yet the maker will make an idol, an image, a teacher of falsehood, because its maker trusts in his own handiwork. So if the maker trusts in his own handiwork, bows himself down to his own handiwork, he can't possibly learn anything that's true. He can only learn falsehood. He can only learn idolatry. For the maker trusts his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. That's the big difference between God and all idols. That our God speaks. This is consistent with everything that we know about God. When he represents himself, think about how he represented himself to Moses. When he was in the burning bush and Moses said, who are you? Who should I say sent me? You've told me to go say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Okay, Pharaoh knows a whole pantheon of gods. So which God are you? Which God should I say sent me? And God made the distinction, I'm the one that am. <laughs> I'm the one that is. I, I just am. I am that I am, which is his way of saying all those other gods am not. But I am. God is. I remember Elder Ward years ago preaching a sermon in which he said, God has isness. God exists 
and all the other gods and the works of men's hands just don't exist. And God sees that as a very obvious and clear distinction between him and all the other gods, all the other idols. I speak, they don't, because I am, and they're not. And you can see God just in his frustration almost here, saying, how can you people make an idol that you know you've made and it doesn't speak and it doesn't educate you and you can't learn anything from it and you're bowing yourself down in front of it. And it doesn't even have breath. It doesn't have breath. There's nothing living in it. Verse 19, so woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake. (laughs) That's just dumb. Let's try it. That's an inanimate chair right next to you, Carol. Take a shot at waking it up. Doesn't matter how much you yell at it or what you say. You can't wake it up. It's inanimate. Woe to him. And God does not just say, well, he's confused. Or, gee, have pity on him. God pronounces woe on him. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake. Or to a dumb stone, that doesn't mean stupid stone, it means non-speaking stone. To a dumb stone, he says, arise. The rock can't lift himself up. It's inanimate. You have to pick it up and carry it just to get it anywhere. And yet, that is your teacher? God asked the question. That's where you're getting your knowledge is from a piece of wood, from a stone, who can't awake, who can't arise, and yet he's your teacher? That's where you're learning your religion? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is, as Gladys just said, and there is no breath at all inside it. So it's not even alive. It's dead. And that's the thing you worship. Meanwhile, God who is living and active and intelligent and speaking and communicating and making himself known, they won't bow down to him. Again, your neighbor kind of like. They they won't bow down to the living God because they don't like the way the living God acts. So what do they do? Make a God more to their liking. And then bow down to that because that makes me feel good about what I made. It is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. And then verse 20, but the Lord, the real God, Yahweh, is in his holy temple. And by the way, he's encased himself in a light that no man approaches, which means that he has a kind of self-existent singularity that doesn't require men to do anything. He existed long before he made men. And when he made everything at the beginning of the book of Genesis, when he said, let there be light, and he put the stars and the planets into the firmament, he didn't check with anybody. There were no people around to check with. But the Lord is in his holy temple, so let all the earth be silent before him. It's the truth. Not only do I think he's saying be silent before him, because it's he knows what you're saying but it's be silent before him because you've got nothing to say to him you've got nothing to add to him and he is you don't need you don't know anything that he needs to hear 
That's why I like God asking questions like, if I were hungry, would I tell you? You can't do anything to improve God. And yet God, in his singleness, in his separateness, in his holiness, he deserves all the worship and all the praise. And the people are busy praising the works of their own hands. And so the fact that God is in his temple means that all the earth just needs to shut up. Just be quiet before him. It's hard to hear God when you're busy talking too. Yeah, isn't that the truth? So that takes us to chapter 3. Now, there were, among the documents that were dug up at the Qumran cave, among the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a copy of a commentary on the book of Habakkuk. And the text was practically identical to what we're holding here in our hands today because the text was recited in the commentary. So we know that this is a long-standing book that hasn't changed. The wording has not changed. It's, it's a very accurate book. But the commentary only included chapters 1 and 2 because that's the prophetic portion of the book causing commentators in the contemporary world to speculate about whether chapter 3 was actually a part of Habakkuk when it was originally written and disseminated and whether it actually comes from Habakkuk, although he does say in here that it did come from him. The argument is, you know, the earliest keepers of the oracles, the people who canonized what we know as the Old Testament, they saw the third chapter of Habakkuk as coming originally from Habakkuk and being the genuine article. And so they started listing it with Habakkuk, and that's why we have it in the book right now. But you'll notice right away that it is not like the first two chapters. The first two chapters are predictive and prophetic, and now it's a prayer. It's a prayer from Habakkuk to God that takes the genuine form of a psalm that, like I said, includes some musical notation, and it's actually addressed right to, as you'll see at the very end, for the choir director on my stringed instruments. And so this is meant to be a recitation or a psalm that's accompanied by musical instruments for part of the worship of God in his temple. So verse 1 says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth, now, you can read commentary after commentary, and they'll tell you that this particular word only appears here, and so people speculate about what it means, whether it's a person or whether it is a form of music. But it seems to be a word that has kind of been lost to antiquity. Verse 2, Lord, I have heard the report about thee, and I fear. That's the right response. I hate to keep bringing up your neighbor, but if you do believe that God not only exists, but he did smite all the Hebrew children, then the proper response is fear of that God. Hebrew children? Oh, did I say Hebrew children? Egyptian children? Yes. Yes. Well, then the proper response is the fear of that God, because if he does exist, and importantly, if he has demonstrated himself to be willing to do stuff like that, then he's willing to judge you. And yet men in their insanity see all of that evidence 
and still rebel against it and shake their fist at it and say, I won't have a God like that and I won't worship him. And the response here from Habakkuk is, I heard the report about you and it scared me. I feared before you. I'm reverently now bowing before you. Isn't the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? That's the beginning of wisdom. Can you imagine what the end of wisdom must be? If that's the beginning? Lord, I have heard the report about thee, and I fear. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. That phrase, in the midst of the years, appears to be a Hebraism that kind of means do it quickly. Do it in my lifetime. Bring it about as quickly as possible. Okay, I know everything that you've said. I understand prophetically what it is you're going to do. And you're going to bring down Babylon, but then you're going to conquer Babylon. And you said so. And you have made promises to your people, and you're going to bring about your kingdom. And, and I, I pray that what you're going to do, at least you do it quickly. That's certainly the way we look at the return of Christ. That we hope for the return of Christ quickly. Bring it about, even in my lifetime. And that's what that phrase seems to mean, in the midst of the years. Make it known. And in your wrath, remember mercy. Okay, there's a good prayer. (laughs) Yeah. We know the wrath is coming. We know what Habakkuk's prophecy was. We know what God is going to do. But in the midst of that, remember mercy. Be good to some people. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Okay, we're going to have to talk about a couple of those things. Timon seems to be a geographical reference. It actually appears to refer to all of the land of Israel south of the Dead Sea. And uh, Mount Paran, Moses actually mentions Mount Paran. Somebody look up Deuteronomy 33.2, and you'll see that Moses refers to Mount Paran as a place that shows the glory of God. And so it's uh, consistent for Habakkuk to say that God is coming from Mount Paran. Has somebody got that? Somebody in Deuteronomy? What does Deuteronomy 33.2 say? He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of the holy ones with flaming fire in his right hand. Also, there are some commentators who say that Perhaps Teman is a reference to Seir as well, which you heard referenced there in that verse that uh, Tom just read. So Habakkuk is saying something consistent with what Moses has already said. God comes from Teman or from the mountains of Seir. The Holy One comes from Mount Paran. And then he says Selah. Now this word is used both as a musical notation in David's writing in the Psalms But it also is a word that means, stop and think of that. It's a word that means, lift that up in your thinking. Habakkuk wants a break there. If it's a musical notation, he wants the music to be right there before the recitation of his psalm continues. But he also wants everybody to just think on what's already been said. God, the high and holy one, is going to remember mercy and wrath And just like Moses said, the Holy One's going to come from Mount Paran. Think of that. 
His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. Okay, that's not the case right now. The righteousness of God covering the earth, that's something that we're still anticipating happening. But here Habakkuk is saying it is going to happen because God himself is going to bring it about. And if God does it, you can count on it. So then he describes God. The earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays from his hands. And there is the hiding of his power. Before him, now this is God coming in judgment, before him goes pestilence. And plague comes after him. So the image that Habakkuk is creating here is of the warrior God of God who is coming in vengeance, of the God who nobody can compete with, nobody can throw it off and say, I don't agree with that God, he's coming in judgment, but I don't want him to, because he is, after all, radiant like the sun, and he has rays flashing from his hands, and he's holding back, he's hiding, he's preserving his power that is within himself, and he's going to unleash that power And before him goes the pestilence, and the plague comes behind him. And he stood, and he surveyed the earth, and he looked, and he startled the nations. Which is an interesting phrase, again, because the thought is, when he finally comes in this righteousness, in this justice, when you finally see the glory of God happen, the nations are going to be in the oh-no state. (laughs) He's going to surprise everybody by the way that he intervenes in human history. He stood and he surveyed the earth. He looked and he startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains, the mountains that have always been, were shattered. And the ancient hills collapsed. He's bringing everything down to dust. He's leveling the playing field. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress And the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. You may remember Cushan and Midian. Again, they were on the east and west sides of the Dead Sea. But when the children of Israel were in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and when they went through the Dead Sea, these are the the areas around them that actually witnessed all that and were fearful of the God of Israel as a result, as the reputation of God went out throughout the Middle East, it began there in the cities of Kushan and in Midian because they actually witnessed the deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt and then through the Red Sea. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress and the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. So now, why did God do that? Here's His next question, I'm going to put it in the modern vernacular for a moment. So why did God strike the Red Sea and make it part so that the children of Israel could go across it? Why did he part the River Jordan? Why did he smite the River Jordan so that the the waters would hold back? Was he mad at the sea? Was he mad at at the rivers? Well, that's the next question. The implication is no. No, he didn't do this because he's mad at the sea or at the natural things that he had made. He did this because of his interaction with people. Did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was thine anger against the rivers? 
or was thy wrath against the sea that thou didst ride on thy horses, on thy chariots of salvation? Thy bow was made bare. In other words, he took his bow out of its sheath. The rods of chastisement, some of your translations will say the arrows of chastisement, were sworn. Selah. He wants you to pause again and think about that. That when God brings about his vengeance, when he takes out his bow, when he starts shooting his arrows of chastisement, that that's something that God has said time and time again, I'm going to do. He swore it. He swore it by his own name, by his own righteousness, by his own holiness. These things are going to occur, and there's nothing you can do but think about it. Thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. The mountains saw thee, and they quaked. The downpour of waters swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of thine arrows, at the radiance of thy gleaming spear. I think the point of him bringing up all these reactions from what we would call nature, everything from the heavens and the earth and the sun and the moon and the waters underneath and the mountains and, and even the water lifting up its hands in praise to God, what he's saying is all of God's creation recognizes its creator. And when the creator enters his creation, the creation cries out. It's only foolish men who shake their fist and go, not having it. But the creation knows who created it. In indignation, thou didst march through the earth. In anger, thou didst trample the nations. Thou didst go forth for the salvation of thy people, for the salvation of thine anointed. Boy, I like that verse. I'm really glad that verse is there. Because now Habakkuk has said, Yes, God's going forward in his indignation. He's going forward in his wrath. God is laying the high places low and he's bringing up rivers and the sun and the moon have stopped. And this is part of that whole idea of the whole earth being quiet before him. And yet Habakkuk concludes that he's doing all of these things not only to punish his enemies, but also to save his people because he's always faithful to his people. In other words... In the midst of his wrath, he remembers mercy. Thou didst strike the head of the house of evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Man, if your neighbor doesn't like the Egyptian children being killed, here's Habakkuk saying that God is going to cut people in half and lay them open from thigh to neck. Yeah, you're right. I just saw Carol shudder. That's right. The vengeance of God, and yet at the same time, the mercy of God in the salvation of his people. What? From the house of the wicked. Yes, from the house of the wicked. Absolutely. In fact, put all that together. Thou didst go forth for the salvation of thy people, for the salvation of thine anointed, and thou didst strike the head of the house of evil and lay him open from thigh to neck. So here you see the mercy and the judgment of God. Selah, again, think about God. That's what he's like. Thou didst 
pierce with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. Thou didst tread on the sea with thy horses and on the surge of many waters. I heard that, and my inward parts trembled. It's the right reaction again. If this is the way God represents himself, if he has that kind of power and authority and splendor, if the seas aren't able to stop him, think about the apostles in the ship when Jesus comes walking on the water. They feared and thought it was a ghost. This is the way God acts. God isn't held by, isn't kept by what we would consider the natural order. Gravity is no problem for him. If, if God wants to rev up, by the way, his chariot, and I'm going to ride on the sea, well, then that ought to cause fear and humbleness in your inward parts. And the sound of my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place... I tremble because I must wait quietly. Remember all the earth, be quiet because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. So this is Habakkuk saying, I know what's coming. God has told me what's coming. We're going to be invaded and I have no other choice than to recognize that God in his sovereignty is going to do what God is going to do. God is going to bring all these things about, and my response to all that is to wait quietly. Because I'm not going to change his mind. I'm not going to talk him out of it. All I can do is wait for it to happen. For the people to arise who will invade us. But now look at the way it ends. Now that he knows it's coming. Now that he knows this is going to happen. The Babylonians are coming and they're going to invade us. And they're going to kill us. And they're going to take us captive. And it's just going to be really bad for Jerusalem. Instead of shaking his fist at God, he finishes this psalm by saying, no matter what God does, I'm going to praise him anyway. Because I recognize and fear. Because my heart melts before that God. Though the fig tree should not blossom, okay, there's nothing to eat, and there be no fruit on the vines, okay, no more wine, and though the yield of the olive should fail, okay, no more olive oil, and no oil to light your lamps, and though the fields produce no food, and though the flock should be cut off from the fold. Okay, there's no animals to eat and the fields aren't producing any food. So even though we're starving and there be no cattle in the stalls, there's just empty stalls. So we've got no milk, no leather, no meat. Though that is the end result of God bringing our enemies upon us. Look at verse 18. Yet I will exult in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So no matter how bad it looks, no matter how bad the circumstances of your life appear to be, here poor Habakkuk has already been told what's coming. And he said, I've got no choice but just be quiet and wait for it. But his conclusion is, even if it destroys this land and there's no food and we're all starving, nevertheless, I fear that God and I will worship him. 
which is the right response. I will exult in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So that God who remembers mercy in the midst of his judgment, that God who makes sure that he not only is going to bring divine judgment down on his enemies, but at the same time is coming for the salvation of his people, Habakkuk sees it as his salvation, the God of his salvation. And since he's the God of his salvation, it doesn't matter what happens here and now. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hinds feet. Do you know that phrase? There's actually a book that was written with that title. I remember one time, I'm just going to tell you this story. Yeah, because it's not that late. Okay, good. I got a story for you. So I was at the church in Los Angeles. Tom will remember it. And the platform at the front of the church was, was high. I was sitting on the front row because I was involved in the music, so I was always right there in the front row. And the microphone that the pastor was using cut out. <coughs> and we had another wireless microphone for just such occasions. But when I heard the microphone go down, I instinctively jumped up out of my chair and I leapt up to the platform. I mean, just like Olympic leaping. I mean, like <laughs> the kind of leaping that you, I mean, bounding and leaping. And I didn't even think about it. In fact, when I landed, my right foot kind of had to go out to the side to kind of stop me because I had just leapt with such force. And the pastor referred to me as a Heinz foot man. So, <laughs> so I relate to this verse. But what it means is God's going to make my feet like Heinz feet. He's going to make me like the goats that can climb up on the mountains. Have you ever been driving through the mountains and seen the goats up on the side of the hills? And you say, How did they get up here? There's even a kind of goat that has developed a longer right side than left side so he can stand on uneven ground. He's saying, God is going to deliver me, he's going to save me, and he's going to make my feet capable of climbing up those high, high mountains of God. And so the result is, and he makes me walk on my high places, because God's given me the feet to do that. For the choir director, on my stringed instruments, and that's the end of Habakkuk. So next week, we'll go back to 2 Kings, and we'll pick up at Josiah, and we'll talk about the reforms that Josiah made in Jerusalem. And as Josiah and the next couple of kings happen, the Babylonian captivity is coming. It's been predicted now by three of the minor prophets that we've looked at here briefly. And uh, certainly, God is going to bring it about. And then as we continue through 2 Kings, we're going to see the Babylonian captivity and the fall of Jerusalem and that's all coming, and that takes us into the times of Jeremiah and into the times of Daniel. And uh, I don't know how much of Jeremiah or Daniel we're going to look at. If I go verse by verse through Jeremiah, we're going to be here till Jesus comes. <laughs> so I don't know how much of that we'll do. We've kind of been sticking to the shorter prophets just so that we can keep going in Second Kings. So that's the plan now. Josiah. Back to Josiah. In fact, that will take us back to chapter 22 of 2 Kings. And then between 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we will wrap up the time of the Babylonian captivity. It will take us into the time of the Persian captivity, which really also 
takes us into the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and then it will also take us into the time of, um, of Esther. And I do want to read through the book of Esther because that's a completely enjoyable story. So we've got a lot to do. We've got a whole lot to keep us busy here on Wednesday nights. And it's going to be a while before we get out of the Old Testament. But then uh, by the time we're done... I guess I'll have to live to be 100. You'll have to live to be 100. (laughs) And apparently, so will I. So that's the plan. Questions? Do you enjoy Habakkuk? amazing how many references are used out of that short little book in so many different writings. It's very contemporary, isn't it? But I think it's because the problems that Habakkuk was facing back then are so similar to the problems we're facing now. And of course, as we saw last week, the way that all the reformers and Paul used the just shall live by faith. I mean, that comes out of Habakkuk. Sit down, shut up, and hang on. Yeah. <laughs> I want a t-shirt that says, shut up, sit down, and hang on. That's my theology from now on. When people say, summarize your theology, I'm going to say, sit down, shut up, hang on. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you again that you are a God that speaks and that you're a God that teaches Because we simply could not know these things if you didn't tell us. And we know that the works of our hands add up to nothing. They're going to burn. And we know that you're the God that ever exists. And that you're the God that reveals himself to the people that you've chosen to reveal himself to. So we're so very grateful to be counted among that number. We're so very grateful in this God-forsaken world to be among the remnant. And much as uh, Habakkuk looked forward to you doing what you were going to do in a timely manner, we pray that you will send your son, that you'll send him soon, and that he'll come to get us, and that he will take us permanently home, and finally we will rest from the weariness of this really wicked world. So be kind to us, be gracious to us, remember your mercy, And uh, remember your people. And we thank you for all your kindnesses to us. And then give us the strength to endure the things you decide we have to go through. Bring us back here on Sunday so we can look into your word again. And between now and Sunday, cause us to do good things, to look after each other, pray for one another, lift each other up. We pray all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.